This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you were listening to CHML earlier today, and I hope you were, you would have heard Scott Thompson, who does the show from noon till three, talking with Doug Ford. Doug Ford was chatting with him. Uh, the new conservative leader was on here, and Scott was giving him lots of great questions and asking about lots of policy positions and challenging him on a number of things that he is saying or doing or what he's going to do about this or do about that. If you want to hear the whole interview, by the way, go to 900CHML.com, go to shows, go to Scott Thompson's show, and you'll find the podcast right there. You can hear the whole thing. It's worth taking some time to do that. Anyway, as I was listening today and then went back and listened again, I got wondering whether Doug Ford is taking the correct strategy in this election already. He's been at it now for 48 hours something like that. I mean, he hasn't been leader all that long. So this is not, we're not going to wait to be the Monday morning quarterback or the hindsight is twenty twenty kind of thing. We're going to talk about this right up front, right off the bat. If you are cheering for Doug Ford, is he taking the right strategy? If you're not cheering for Doug Ford, if you're cheering against Doug Ford, is he not taking the right strategy? You can have different voice inflection for that. Someone who knows all about this, who can uh, help us, guy, we've had him on here many times. In fact, we had him on Friday, and I, but I thought we got to get him back today because this is just right in his wheelhouse. Uh, he is the principal of Maple Leaf Strategies. He is a former city councillor. He's a former MPP. His name is Brad Clark. He joins us now. Brad, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. So I was listening to some interviews, the one with Scott Thompson today, and some others that Doug Ford has been doing as he gets his campaign really ramped up and going. And I, my initial reaction was, if you are a Ford supporter, and I don't know how much you've been able to hear yet, are you looking at what he's doing at the outset here, the early steps of this short campaign? Are you looking, saying, yeah, you know what, I think he's hitting all the right notes with the things or the way he is attacking some of these topics? Uh, it remains to be seen, but I... From my perspective, um, he's caught in the in the transition loop now. So he was campaigning for leader, speaking to only progressive conservatives across the province. Now, as leader, he is transitioning to the position where he's now talking to all of Ontario. But he's still caught in that campaign mode of talking to Tories. And so now he has to start... Um, uh, uh, messaging to all of Ontario uh, what his real concerns are. And I don't think he has to have a position on every single thing that media ask him at, at this moment. He, he, he's just new in the job as leader. Well, let me go through a few of the things. And again, and the reason the broader stroke on this, and we'll get to the, I want, I'll get your broad answer after we talk mm-hmm. about some of the specifics. But my initial thought was, if you are cheering, if you are rooting for Doug Ford to win, I'm if I'm in that position, I might be thinking, you know what your best move is here? Don't be all that specific. Don't be all get pinned down on a lot of different things. People are eager to see Kathleen Wynne gone. The polls say you're going to be swept into office. Just ride it out and let the good times roll here and figure it out because you've got lots of time to do that. But let me, we'll get to that in a minute. Specifically, Scott Thompson asked him today about sex education, about the school sex ed program. He says he will repeal the Liberals' plan on that. Now, there are a lot of people who may agree with him, but is that one of those topics that you want to get pinned down on really easily, or is that something that becomes a complete distraction from the bigger things? It depends on how far into messaging he goes on the curriculum. The curriculum 
generally has never been developed by politicians. It's developed by uh, the academics and the teachers and the people in that teaching field. So if his message is that he wants to consult more with parents on this curriculum um, and that he's going to, to repeal it and make changes to it based on those consultations but doesn't go into more detail, then that's fair game. Most people in Ontario would understand that. Is that similar, though, in some ways to what happened when John Tory said that he wanted to have bring up the religious education thing? And not that the two things are necessarily tied together, but they become something that the other parties can latch on to, not pay attention to the big issues of economics and other things, and focus a lot of attention on this one thing and try and make the conservative leader sound like he is somehow a rube or wants to go back in time or whatever else? Uh, 100%. Yes, they will concentrate on issues like this, issues like abortion, uh, anything that doesn't point to their incredible, poor, underwhelming governance uh, as a government. So, yeah, they'll, they'll attack them on this because they think that they can score points on it. Uh, but if he's simply stating that he's going to re-examine the sex education and have a consultation on it, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Because at the end of the day, you're going to have very similar uh, teachers and academics recommending very similar things to the next government. Um, and they'll have to make those de- decisions at that time. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Brad Clark, Principal of Maple Leaf Strategies, former City Councilor, former MPP, talking about the early days of Doug Ford's campaign. If you are a supporter, are you looking at the way he is launching into this as a brilliant, well-constructed, well-thought-out strategy? If you are a Liberal or an NDP, are you saying this is scary or saying this is perfect for us? Uh, Brad, there were other things that Scott Thompson, when he talked to Doug Ford today was talking about alcohol and marijuana sales. He was talking about the healthcare system. He was talking about the education system. And the one theme throughout so many of the answers that Doug Ford offered was consultive. We are going consultative, I guess is the right word. We're going to ask the people. We're going to go to the people. We're going to go to either the public for education stuff. We're going to go to the professionals in that field uh, with nurses and doctors. We're going to ask for their input. Is that a winning strategy for the conservatives? Yes. Uh, The general public in Ontario feels that there has been a woeful lack of civic engagement uh, from the Liberals, Uh, that the Liberals were a nanny state government, and they made the decisions for the people. And so what Doug Ford is saying is, no, we're going to talk to the people, we're going to engage the people, we're going to consult with the people, and we're going to make legislation that is based on those consultations, those broad consultations. So the public want to hear that, Scott. They really do. Would the Liberals and Conservatives answer, because for every issue for any party that they raise, the other parties are going to have a response to this. Would the answer to that, though, not be... That means you don't really have any specifics. You're simply putting everything off until you get into office, and we're not going to know because we don't know what the public is going to tell you. Well, no, because, again, he's, what is he now, 72 hours in? Uh, I mean, he really hasn't been a leader that long. And so he still has to put a campaign team together. They still have to look at the platform that was developed under Mr. Brown and and um, work with the caucus to find out exactly what they're going to be running on. Now, if I was advising Doug, I'd be saying, okay, pick a half dozen things that are very important to the people of Ontario 
and run with those items. You don't have to run on a 200-page platform. Mm. Well, yeah, that would get everybody bogged down for sure, no question. I would suggest, and I'm not a politician, but my first inclination, if I am Doug Ford, is based on what he's done through his campaign and based on basically what the Conservatives, all the four of them were doing through the campaign to become leader, is to simply say, you know what, don't look to us to solve every problem. This province, you've told us, this province is way too screwed up, way too far in debt, way too messed. We can't solve every problem. We're just going to try and point it in the right direction. That, to me, would be my answer. Now, that doesn't exactly maybe sound inspiring, <laughs> but don't no, but be... but pin- that answer, Scott, does mesh with, we're going to consult with you. So here's the, the, the six items that we're really, truly concerned about, um, and we're going to make, be making broad changes. Um, but on other issues, as they come up, you have our commitment that we will be consulting. We will have town halls. We will be reaching out to, to all of the ridings in Ontario. That is a strong message, which the Liberals have never sent. So if I am, again, if I'm Andrea Horvath or if I'm Kathleen Wynne and their people, what is my answer to this? Especially if I'm Kathleen Wynne, because I don't know how many people are really thinking Andrea Horvath is going to win this thing. So if I'm Kathleen Wynne, what is my message to counteract or to contradict what Doug Ford is saying right now? It's to take anything that he says out of context and make it sound ridiculous, like her statement that it was reckless to, to um, have cannabis in private retail operations. All of our drugs, all of our prescriptions are sold through private retail operations. They also sell candy bars. The grocery stores sell beer and wine. They also sell candy bars. If it's reckless to do it with cannabis, then why isn't it reckless to do it with drugs and wine and beer, which they have already done? So they're going to try and spin things to make it look like he's crazy, that he's out of control, that he's somehow a really right-wing um, conservative. Um, and what he needs to do is have discipline in his messaging and talk to the things that he wants to talk about, not what the NDP and the Liberals want. But is he not, we only have a minute or so left here, is mm-hmm. he not the one of the four Conservative candidates that they would be able to do that to? Any of the other three, I don't know that they would have been able to maybe be able to gain some traction. I, I don't know oh, if it's going to no, work. I would disagree. They were going to run on the hidden agenda regardless for the Conservatives. But with the last name Ford, you can probably get some traction that he's going to be crazy. With partisans, but not with the general public. Really? Yes. Because I think most... I don't think the general public knows Doug Ford. People in Toronto know, know Doug Ford. People across Ontario know Rob Ford. That's, but they know the Ford name. The, yes, and he's Doug Ford. He's not his brother Rob. Okay, and is that something, though, that he is going to be able to... Uh, to me, that seems like one of the biggest things he has to do in this campaign is show that he is not Rob Ford yeah. Part 2. And in the vacuum of the transition, when he's moving into the leadership role, the NDP and the Liberal will do everything they can to brand him as careless and reckless. And Rob Ford. Correct. Yeah. he That may be, and again, just based on the polls alone and how far ahead he is right now, to me that is the one place where this could go wrong for him if he does a poor job and allows himself to be portrayed as another version of his brother, as the same thing. And Otherwise, he's quite capable of being disciplined in his messaging. He just hasn't had an opportunity to figure out exactly what his messaging is going to be. 
<laughs> we, I'm sure, will pick this up. I, I'm going to, in the next few days, uh, be having a similar topic about Kathleen Wynne and or Andrea Horvath as well, I hope. So, uh, but listen, uh, really appreciate it, Brad. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Brad Clark, principal at Maple Leaf Strategies, former city councillor, former conservative MPP for the province of Ontario. That's what an MPP is, I guess. It's sort of redundant. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. When was the last time you bought an album? CD, vinyl, whatever. Some of you are vinyl collectors. I know that. So the answer is probably recently. But for many of you, it has been a while. Once upon a time, we would go to the record store, we'd go to the CD store, the music store, whatever, and buy them. Not so much lately, and this is becoming a big, big problem for the music industry. Sales are down. They are way down, falling off the cliff. Even the biggest stars in the world are seeing numbers of record sales, of album sales, that are just dropping and dropping and dropping. Why? That may not be all that complicated a question. I think a lot of people could probably understand why. The much more complicated, much more interesting question is what can be done about this? Does the industry have an answer? Is there anything that can be done now to get people to part with their money again to buy music? Bobby Ozinski is a longtime producer, engineer, and musician, now the author of 24 books on the music industry. He joins me now. Bobby, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. Can we chalk up... 100% of this to piracy and streaming that people do online and say they're getting their music that way, so that's entirely the reason why record sales have fallen off? Well, I think you can eliminate piracy as a reason and chalk it mostly up to streaming at this point because streaming is becoming the number one way for music consumers, or at least the, the consumers that consume most of the music today, aren't getting their music. Now, the second, of course, is radio, and again, that's not sales, so it's a little bit different, and we're talking singles again. So. Well, well and, and radio has been around forever, and in the past, that was never an issue. People would still buy albums even if they were listening to the song on the radio. And by the way, just for clarity, when I said piracy, I don't mean, obviously, uh, hard copy. I mean, back in the day when you could download the free stuff, you could probably still do it off, you know, not with Apple Music, but to just get the, um, the music that you don't pay for. But people still, Bobby, people, there's, there's no question that the taste in music, the love for music hasn't changed. People still like music. Yeah, I think you're right. They still do, probably more than ever. And certainly, I don't know that that's ever changed. The way we consume things change, the way we consume the music that we love, but it's it changes every generation because mm. there's always new technology, and the technology drives how we consume our music. Well, for an example, and I was blown away by this, uh, these numbers of how things are changing. Taylor Swift came out with an album, 1989, four years ago, sold over 5 million copies. Her latest album, Reputation, that came out a while ago, has sold just 2 million that's a big difference, but that's just one person. You say, okay, well, maybe the album wasn't well-received or people didn't like it as much or not enough time has passed. Overall, sales are down 17, 17.7% year over year. And you wrote a piece recently, Bobby, that points out that in 1999, 939.9 million CDs were sold, I think, in North America. Less than 20 years later, that number is down to 169.2, almost 800 million fewer CDs being sold. That is an industry that is 
suffering? Well, I don't know. I mean, if you look at sales, it's one thing, but then again, we're talking about revenue, and revenue is actually up over the last few years. Really? Sure. Rev- revenue is going up, and, and the music industry is pretty happy because streaming is generating a fair amount of cash. So how does that, okay, let, let's go to that for a moment, because I, I subscribe to Apple Music, and I pay my 10 bucks a month, and I can now listen to any, pretty much almost any song, any musician that is out there. How are the musicians ending up getting a lot of money or getting their fair share out of that? Well, see, here it, herein lies the problem for musicians, but it's no different than it ever was the deal that you sign with the record label dictates the kind of money that you're going to make pending the revenue that's being generated. So if you have a, a terrible deal that you signed with the record label, it means you're not going to get as much money as Taylor Swift, for instance, who probably has a premier deal with her label. As a matter of fact, I think she she's a part owner. So she's making considerably more money on the same amount of revenue that's being generated than maybe a, a baby act that's just signed. So, you know, we're back to that. There, it really has everything to do with revenue, but even more to do with the amount, with the deal that has been signed. So there's plenty of money being generated by the industry. It's not what it once was, for sure, but it's getting better. It's been growing, and for the most part, the industry is fairly happy with the direction everything is going. That being said, musicians are less happy because, again, it's how much is trickling down. So, right, so the industry, that when you say the industry, primarily you're referring to the executives, the labels, the other things. The musicians aren't maybe making as much, but the folks who are wearing the suits in the business, in the office, they're getting their share. Well, certain musicians are, but, you know, it's a 1% business there, and probably just like the rest of society modern civilized society anyway where you have the one percent that's making a whole lot and the middle ground is making a whole lot less and of course the of course if you go to the low end even less so so the taylor swifts and the um, the artists of that superstar level the drakes they're doing just fine they're making more money than ever and, and they're making it from streaming, surprisingly enough. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. When was the last time you bought an album? CD, vinyl, whatever. Some of you are vinyl collectors. I know that. So you, the answer is probably recently. But for many of you, it has been a while. Once upon a time, we would go to the record store. We'd go to the CD store, the music store, whatever, and buy them. Not so much lately, and this is becoming a big, big problem for the music industry. Sales are down. They are way down, falling off the cliff. Even the biggest stars in the world are seeing numbers of record sales, of album sales, that are just dropping and dropping and dropping. Why? That may not be all that complicated a question. I think a lot of people could probably understand why. The much more complicated, much more interesting question is what can be done about this? Does the industry have an answer? Is there anything that can be done now to get people to part with their money again to buy music? Bobby Ozinski is a longtime producer, engineer, and musician, now the author of 24 books on the music industry. He joins me now. Bobby, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. Can we chalk up 
100% of this to piracy and streaming that people do online and say they're getting their music that way, so that's entirely the reason why record sales have fallen off? Well, I think you can eliminate piracy as a reason and chalk it mostly up to streaming at this point because streaming is becoming the number one way for music consumers, or at least the, the consumers that consume most of the music today, aren't getting their music. Now, second, of course, is radio, and again, that's not sales, so it's a little bit different, and we're talking singles again. So. Well, well and, and radio has been around forever, and in the past, that was never an issue. People would still buy albums even if they were listening to the song on the radio. And by the way, just for clarity, when I said piracy, I don't mean obviously uh, I, hard copy. I mean back in the day when you could download the free stuff, you could probably still do it off, you know, not with Apple Music, but to just get the um, the music that you don't pay for. But people still buy I mean, people. There's there's no question that the taste in music, the love for music, hasn't changed. People still like music. Yeah, I think you're right. They still do, probably more than ever. And certainly, I don't know that that's ever changed. The way we consume things change, the way we consume the music that we love, but it's it changes every generation because mm. there's always new technology, and the technology drives how we consume our music. Well, for an example, and I was blown away by this, uh, these numbers of how things are changing. Taylor Swift came out with an album in 1989, four years ago, sold over 5 million copies. Her latest album, Reputation, that came out a while ago, has sold just 2 million that's a big difference, but that's just one person. You say, okay, well, maybe the album wasn't well-received or people didn't like it as much or not enough time has passed. Overall, sales are down 17, 17.7% year-over-year, year, and you wrote a piece recently, Bobby, that points out that in 1999, 939.9 million CDs were sold, I think, in North America. Less than 20 years later, that number is down to 169.2, almost 800 million fewer CDs being sold. That is an industry that is suffering. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you look at sales, it's one thing, but then again, we're talking about revenue, and revenue is actually up over the last few years. Really? Sure. Revenue is going up, and, and the music industry is pretty happy because streaming is generating a fair amount of cash. So how does that, okay, let, let's go to that for a moment, because I, I subscribe to Apple Music, and I pay my 10 bucks a month, and I can now listen to any, pretty much almost any song, any musician that is out there. How are the musicians ending up getting a lot of money or getting their fair share out of that? Well, see, here it, herein lies the problem for musicians, but it's no different than it ever was. The deal that you sign with the record label dictates the kind of money that you're going to make pending the revenue that's being generated. So if you have a, a terrible deal that you signed with the record label, it means you're not going to get as much money as Taylor Swift, for instance, who probably has a premier deal with her label. As a matter of fact, I think she she's a part owner. So she's making considerably more money on the same amount of revenue that's being generated than maybe a, a baby act that's just signed. So, you know, we're back to that. There, it really has everything to do with revenue, but even more to do with the amount, with the deal that has been signed. So there's plenty of money being generated by the industry. It's not what it once was, for sure, but it's getting better. It's been growing, and for the most part, 
the industry is fairly happy with the direction everything is going. That being said, musicians are less happy because, again, it's how much is trickling down. So, right. So the industry that when you say the industry, primarily you're referring to the executives, the labels, the other things. The musicians aren't maybe making as much, but the folks who are wearing the suits in the business in the office, they're getting their share. Well, certain musicians are, but you know, it's a one percent business there, and probably just like the rest of society modern civilized society anyway where you have the one percent that's making a whole lot and the middle ground is making a whole lot less and of course the of course if you go to the low end even less so so the taylor swifts and the um, the artists of that superstar level the drakes they're doing just fine they're making more money than ever and, and they're making it from streaming, surprisingly enough. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Bobby Ozinski. He's a music business writer. He's been an engineer. He's been in the business for many, many years. 24 books he's got out on this. Uh, Bobby, one of the things that you wrote about in a piece that, um, that I just read today was suggesting that while the industry may be bringing in money, they may be doing at least one thing a little bit wrong here, in some cases anyway, and that is, and you point out, and I think you're bang on on this one, people have changed. We don't necessarily want to put on an album and sit there and listen to the whole album for an hour now. We have songs that we like. We are able, because of Apple Music or whatever else, to bounce around and grab the stuff we want. You suggested that maybe putting out entire albums is missing the point right now. Do a lot of singles. Just keep pumping out the singles. That seems to be the way to go. Well, there's a couple of reasons for it, and there are many artists that are finally seeing the light, not only the artists, but the record labels as well. So things are beginning to change within the industry. Away from albums, the biggest, the two biggest things that come from being singles-oriented rather than album-oriented is the fact that if you put out a single every six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it might be, there's constant engagement with the fan base. So that's very important, but also it gives each song the chance to be listened to. And I'm sure you've done this, Scott, as I have. You get an album, you put it on, you go through it real fast, you pick the one or two or three songs that you really like, and those are the ones you concentrate on from then on, and you don't really listen to the other ones thereafter. So there, you have a number of songs that kind of fall by the wayside. When you're in a singles society, that doesn't happen, because each song can live and die on its own. Is that, so, is that not kind of an old view, though? I mean, in a way that worked. I'm thinking back, and it was before my time, but... There was a time when the Beatles were putting out a single very regularly, and that would be the song that was on the radio, and then another one would come out. And they, and they, yes, they put out LPs, but you also got that dropping of a song every once in a while. Yeah, prior to that, even in the 50s, it was a singles era, and you didn't even get a chance to do an album until you sold X number of singles. And, you know, if you had two hit singles, then you got the opportunity to do an album. And perhaps we're going back to that now. I don't know that it's a bad way to go either. I think it's probably very healthy for the business. Going back to the idea of buying albums as well, though, and maybe it's just an inconvenience because now that I can just do it on my phone, I can pull up whatever I want. I don't need to go to the record store or wherever else. But 
there is also a refrain in our society. We see it with newspapers, with journalism. We see it with movies. We see it with TV now that you can stream and download everything. Why do I want to pay for something when I can get it for free? Is that an attitude that becomes, it seems to me, that's an attitude that becomes very difficult to change to get people back to buying music. But even if you're buying it, you're paying your $10 a month for Apple Music, as you said before, Scott. It doesn't mean that you have to be subjected to listening to something that you don't want to listen to. So you only cherry pick. You pick the, the stuff that you want or is suggested to you by a trusted source. So if we go back to the album case, I put an album on, and how do I know I want to listen to all nine or ten songs? I probably don't. Mm -hmm. There's only a few. Why should I subject myself to listening to something I don't want to? And that makes perfect sense. It should make the quality better, right? Should. I think. Yeah, it should. It should. Does it? Has it yet? I believe so. Okay. And the, the reason why is, again, as we move away from our album society, artists that have bought into the singles mentality will definitely spend as much time as needed on a single to make it as good as possible. Or the other possibility is they'll do it as quickly as possible to get it out. <laughs> now, either way can work. Now, I kind of believe that sometimes for an artist, especially someone that's brilliant, the first intention is probably the best. So if you were to turn around and put something out very quickly, and there are many situations where this has happened recently. Um, uh, Ed Sheeran's last big hit was done like this, where it was done in a day and a half. I think that you're actually getting a, a much better product. And you're getting it out faster. And if it doesn't work, it's better for the artist. It's better for for the listening public. It's better for everybody. If it doesn't work, you just move on to get the on to the next one. Exactly. Well, th the other point of this is uh, there seems to be um, a feeling among many of the artists, if you read stuff, that if they're not going to make, if the artists themselves are not going to make as much money through record sales, through CD sales. The place where they can still be in control and still drive prices and still make a lot of money is by going on tour. And that, that seems to be now the reality. If you are an artist and you want to make your bucks, that's where you're going to make a lot of the money, especially if you're a big name. Well, that being said, Scott, a very powerful music industry attorney once told me a long time ago, actually, that from the beginning of time of recorded music, the artist made 90 to 95% of all of their money from touring, from, from something hmm. other than recorded music. And this goes back to Sinatra and even before then, when, when records first came out. So, and if we look at the Beatles, it certainly was like that, and, and everybody after that. The major part of the money is not generated from recorded music. Now, yeah, there's a lot of it that is, but it's not where an artist really catches, uh, really cashes in. So that being said, if you look at it from the point where your music is your marketing and not necessarily your product, then it kind of works out better, and I think it's easier for an artist to take at that point as well. Bobby Ozinski, longtime producer, engineer, musician, now a music industry writer. I appreciate you taking the time to do this tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. That is, uh, I don't know when the last time was, to be honest, that I bought a CD. I honestly cannot think of the last CD that I bought. I pay my 10 bucks a month now on Apple Music, and that is it. That's all I listen to. 
I'm surprised by what Bobby says, that the industry is still doing as well as it is, especially when you look at the numbers. But on average, over the last 20 years, per year, 800 million fewer CDs a year being sold. That's a lot of CDs. That's a lot of money, and yet they seem to be doing okay. I don't quite understand, but good for them if they can figure it out. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Love to do a survey. Can't do it. Radio makes that kind of impossible, at least live radio. Can't get everybody to call in simultaneously. Ben would kill me if I asked everyone to do that. But I'd love to do a survey of how many of you own pets of some kind that you are fond of. And I don't know why you would own a pet you weren't fond of. Yeah, I took in that stray skunk the other day. I hate that thing, but boy, we keep him as a pet. No, everyone likes their pets, right? That's why you have a pet. Question becomes... How much would you pay if your pet got sick to bring that pet back to health? Because, as I say, we love our pets. We love our dogs. We love our cats. I mean, there are certain pets. I'll probably be in trouble for saying this. There are certain pets that are disposable animals. <laughs> All right, okay? A, a goldfish, a guinea pig. Well, maybe not a guinea pig. A gerbil. I know you can like your gerbil, but these are these are... I don't think these are animals that are meant to have a lot of money spent on them for health issues. Your gerbil gets sick and dies. You put them in a shoebox, you bury them in the backyard, you buy a new gerbil. It's a replaceable animal. A dog, however, a cat, something that is interactive, now it gets more difficult. Now it gets more challenging. So how much would you pay? If you own a dog, if you own a cat, if you own a, I don't know, what other animal would, what other kind of animal would you really go in with? A python? I don't know. Maybe if you're a snake person. But what would you pay? Your animal gets sick. The doctor says, yeah, you know, this is this animal is going to die if you are not willing to do this surgery. How much are you willing to pay? Well, let me tell you why I asked this question. In Baltimore this week, a 17-year-old cat. How long do cats even live? They can't be much past 17 years. But anyway, a 17-year-old cat. This is now a cat that in human years is probably about 190. It's it's the Methuselah of cats. It needed a kidney transplant. (laughs) Now, I'm not laughing that a cat needs a kidney transplant. It's just what comes next because the part-time professor who was the owner of this cat decided that she simply could not part with this feline. The fact that the cat was 17 suggests perhaps she should have been working herself towards that eventuality. However, she said, no, I cannot part with this cat. I am going to do whatever is necessary to keep this cat alive. So how much do you think she paid? Ben, let me bring Ben in for a second here, who's on the other side of the glass. Give me your best guess of what you think that this person paid, realistically, don't say $2 billion, it's not that. How much do you think this professor paid for a life-saving kidney operation for her cat? $8,000? Oh, you're not even close. See, I'm thinking, when I first read this beginning of this story, I'm thinking, if I had a pet that I, and we have two dogs at home, and they're fine, they're good pets, they're, you know, we like them. Yeah, you know, if you know, in a pinch, if they're not really old, although this pet was really old, but if they're not really old, if they've potentially got a lot of life left, 
and they needed a kidney, a couple thousand bucks, maybe, maybe that seems to me like really high, but okay, couple, maybe three. Okay, three. There comes a point. Nineteen thousand dollars U.S. they spent to buy a seventeen-year-old cat a new kidney, and. Maybe I'm just a pessimist. Maybe I'm a cynic. Maybe I'm a skeptic. Whatever it is, I'm just thinking they're going to get this 17-year-old cat home after recovery and it's going to drop dead of a heart attack on the floor because it's 17 years old. Cats don't live forever. These are not elephants. They're not crocodiles. They're not jumbo turtles that live to be 140 years old. They're cats. But this person decided they were going to spend $19,000 to fix her cat. And she says that he is happier than he's ever been. Happier than he's ever been. He purrs all the time, she says. I don't know if that's actually purring or that's just his kidney vibrating against the other organs now because it's, I don't know. Uh, He begs for poultry. He wakes me up at 4 a.m. for a snack. He's happy and we're still very good friends. All right. Let me go back one more time. If I pay $19,000 for a cat and it wakes me up at 4 in the morning, (laughs) I have made the wrong choice. I want a cat that's going to sleep through the night at the very least. When you put in the kidney, can you put in some sort of timing device so the cat will sleep through? I can flick a switch and that cat... I don't want to be woken up at 4 in the morning to give my cat a poultry treat. I've just paid $19,000 for you, you dumb cat. I'm not waking up now every morning and losing sleep. I got to go teach my university class. You're waking me up at four to get a chicken snack. This this whole story seems to me to be missing the point. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that I'm not one of these, hey, kill all the cats people. That's not, I, you know, I'm not a cat person. I'm actually deathly allergic to them. But that's not the point. But $19,000 $19, to me seems rather excessive. Rather excessive. What do you think? What do you think? I'd love to hear from you. Radley at 900CHML.com. What would you pay to fix your pet? I don't mean fix like snip snip. I mean to repair some health issue with your pet. I'd love to hear from you. What would you pay to get your pet back to good health? Radley at 900CHML.com. Send me a quick note. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900CHML. This weekend, beginning Friday evening here at McMaster University in the Burge Gym, the Canadian University Volleyball Championships will be held. As we've talked about on the show over the years before, volleyball is not necessarily the most visible or the most familiar sport to a lot of people. We know hockey, we know football, we know baseball, we know basketball, soccer for sure. Volleyball, we don't see all that much of it. But this level in Canada, for reasons that we have explained, and maybe we'll get to it again today, Canadian University Volleyball is at a level equal to or above American University Volleyball. It's probably the only team sport that can make that claim. Individual sports, of course, you're going to have people who can compete. But on a team sport, volleyball is the only one. What this means, the volleyball that's going to be played at McMaster this weekend is going to be really, really good. And every time it's been held here, The crowds have shown up and been aware that they are going to see really, really good volleyball. The guy who coaches McMaster, he's been at the school for many, many years now. He is a three-time, 
I believe, National Coach of the Year, a five-time Ontario Coach of the Year. He has a team that has won six consecutive Ontario championships. They've won nine out of the last 11 Ontario championships. I think I may have forgotten a few things, but his name is Dave Preston, and he joins me now. Dave, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I, I've, as I say, I've forgotten some of the stuff on your resume. I don't know if you uh, ever look at your own resume now, but it's getting very long. Yeah, I don't look at my own resume. <laughs> my kids keep that in check for me pretty quick. By the way, they had a game today of um, non-good volleyball players. It was a community thing. The mayor was playing in it and a bunch of other people. I've noticed that whenever they do this, you don't actually play. I've never, and it dawned on me, I've, I know you're a fantastic coach. I know you're the best coach in Canada. I don't know if you actually play the game well. Well, that's a mystery and a secret that will be kept within, uh, <laughs> within the confines of our own gymnasium. But uh, my playing days are gone, and uh, I, uh, I stick to the golf course and perhaps <laughs> maybe even the squash court every once in a while. But uh, the volleyball days, are, uh, they're long gone. What, what, what level did you play? I, I honestly don't know the answer to this. Like, at what level I, did you go till? I did play at the varsity level. I played at a, a university, a purple university down the stretch. Oh. Uh, yeah, down at the 401 down there. So. And what did you yeah. play? Were you a hitter or a setter? I was, or a... I was, I was actually a setter. I was a quarterback, and, uh, yeah, I, that, that was, uh, I had a brief stint at the university career but realized that my passion was in coaching. And uh, I wasn't as physical as a lot of the other players that were playing the game, so I needed to use my head a little bit more, and that's where I uh, turned to the coaching realm of things. When you look at where Canadian University Volleyball is today, could you have, if you were coming along today, could you have made a team? Could you have made McMaster's team if you were coming along today? I doubt it. Yeah, I, I, I could have been a team manager. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, uh, How good are you at getting water? Yeah, they're they're too physical. They're uh, they're too intelligent. They're yeah. It's just it, it's a different level now. So um, yeah, I would have been a I would have been a really good statistician. I would have been a really good manager. <laughs> um, but uh, as for on the court, it would have been a short career for me. On the court, uh, you guys have now been to the national a bunch of times. When you win Ontario, which as I say, this is your sixth consecutive time and ninth in the last eleven years, you go to the nationals. You having been there that many times, does that add pressure that you got to win one one of these times? Because, I mean, the, the level of competition is so high, or does it take it away? Because we've been there so many times now. We know exactly what to expect. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it adds or if it takes away, Scott. Every year has been really different. Um, you know, I've been doing this, I've been in the league now for 26 years, and uh, 16 of them here at McMaster. And every time that we get a chance, to, to compete for a national championship, almost every single opportunity has been unique. Uh, some of them have been at home. Some of them have been on the road. Some of them you're in a low seed, a high seed. You like your draw, but it doesn't work. You don't like your draw, and holy cow, you ended up in the final. You know, every one of them has their own story. And, um, you know, you can do a, a small comparison, but the truth of the matter is each experience has stood on its own. Well, okay, each one is unique, and, and I understand what you're saying. There is one thing, though, that isn't unique, and that is 20, if I did my math right, 22 out of the past 23 champions have come from the West. Yeah. That can't, there, it can't be a fluke. It can't just be that they grow taller volleyball players out in the prairies or something. What, 
what is the difference between Ontario and West volleyball that allows them to build those kind of teams? Well, if you're looking back 25 years ago, it'll all start with coaching. Uh, the Canadian uh, Canada West schools were some of the first schools to pull, employ full-time volleyball coaches. So uh, they, they, you know, from a scholarship point of view, it hasn't been that long that Ontario has been able to offer scholarships. We still don't offer full scholarships. Uh, so Do they? In terms of just in terms of just re- resource stuff, um, we 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 there was a significant gap. Now we're bridging that gap, but the reality of it is, uh, their full-time scholarships and full-time coaches has been a uh, started a pretty big gap, and we're we're starting to, to, to fill that in. Do you, I mean, many of the guys, I think all the guys who are on your team, maybe I'm wrong, but I think all the guys are from Ontario, but do you lose people to Western teams? Do they recruit as far East as Ontario? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Tariq Sani, who uh, is playing for the university of Alberta right now uh, is an Ontario guy. Um, There's a number of Ontario guys who go West, um, I wouldn't say a number. It's getting smaller and smaller because the the product that we offer here in Ontario is getting stronger and stronger. And um, so, you know, we're keeping guys closer to home. We lose some guys to the NCAA. We lose some guys to the West. But you know, we're, we're, we've done a pretty decent job as a as a province of trying to keep most of Ontario's talent pretty close to home. But if the West can offer full scholarships and you guys can't do that yet, if that gap was closed, would anybody ever leave, especially if they had the, I mean, and I'm not sucking up to you, but if they have the opportunity to play at Mac that wins every year, would that not completely close the gap? It would definitely influence the conversation, right? So like when you, when you start to compare apples and apples, now we can have that conversation, but right now we still can't, there is still a significant gap and uh, we're, we're able to offer total 4,500, uh, a, a season to our athletes, and they can offer full tuition and fees. So um, that's yeah, a huge yeah, difference. What's that? Scott? Th- that's a huge difference when you're talking about yeah. absolutely, you know, complete coverage of your uh, your fees, your your tuition. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so you know, there is a gap. I think it's I, I think it's getting bridged, but there is a gap. And but you know what? You you can look at that in volleyball, but that gap still exists in basketball. That gap still exists in football. Those rules don't apply just to volleyball. So there's been some sports that have been able to do it. Um, volleyball hasn't been able to do it as quick as some of the others. Um, but I do think that over the last, and I think part of our success on the national stage uh, is, is part of that conversation that we have been able to medal for the last five years at the national championship. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's getting tighter it's not closed yet, um, but it's getting tighter. And uh, I'm going to keep working at this until we can close it up permanently. Who it, who decides that then? Is it is it the OUA that says about the scholarship rules, or is it the U Sports, or who makes that that call? It's definitely decided above my pay grade. I believe it is at the Ontario president's level. The the university presidents decide whether or not we're going to get into that game or not. And, uh, and then the athletic directors and, and in conjunction with the president. So it's definitely not at the coaching level. It's no. at a, a much, much higher level than, uh, 
and volleyball coaches. But the tricky part of this, and we can see this in football as well, I mean, with, with the Quebec teams, with Montreal and Laval, where they have the uh, the extra year or two of their, I can't even remember the name of it now, the... Um, CDEP. CDEP, thank you. Yeah, yeah. That, and, and that has had a massive impact on the Canadian football uh, playing field. And with volleyball, it, it always strikes me as interesting that when you look around and, and when people wonder about Canadian sports, why can we not get so many people to buy in as fan-wise to Canadian sports? And then you look and you say, yeah, well, the playing field isn't always even, and you end up with blowout games and people lose interest. Obviously, again, it's above your pay grade, but it seems to me if if you really want to get people engaged in this on a broader scale, make the playing field level, and then let's see what happens. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of merit to that school of thought for sure, Scott, and uh, and I think you and I share a lot of uh, of commonalities there. But the reality of it is, Canadian institu- educational institutions are different beasts, no matter where you go. Right? You've got degree granting colleges, you've got degree granting universities, you've got required CJEP for Quebec, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different pieces to that landscape. And I think it's going to take a much broader conversation to bring this together. But I do, I do think purely from a sport perspective, there is some merit in at least discussing all that stuff at some point in time. Well, when we talk about getting fans and all that kind of thing, I, I wonder when the when the championships were here two years ago, you played uh, certainly in the championship match and probably before, although my memory is not as clear, uh, you played against Trinity Western in the championship match and that place was, Burge Gym was absolutely full. Other than the result, what do you remember about that last match you played at home in that last championship? Um, there's a lot to remember. I remember... Um, yeah, I remember the I remember the noise. Um, I remember the feel of walking into that uh, environment just prior to the match, and uh, and and just feeling the the support. You could, it, it was it, it, as the match was going on, and we took the first set, and, and we we're kind of you know working through some stuff in the second and the third. And you could feel the support the crowd was willing us on. And, uh, you know, obviously Trinity played very, very well and made some in-match adjustments in that match, and, and we didn't. Um, so I, I remember those things vividly. I could tell you a, a couple of plays that I've, uh, that I've relived a couple times in my head too, but I, the, the feeling of the support in that gym was something – yeah, I've coached in world championships. I've coached in the world league. Been, you know, been very, very fortunate to play in some really, really important volleyball matches. That one was one where the feeling was, was, uh, it, it, it was, it was real. Well, and as I said at the top when I was introducing you, volleyball, uh, you don't want to hear this, but you know it's true. Volleyball is not necessarily everybody's number one sport around here. It is a it is a mystery still to a lot of people. So it must be when you're when the guys who are on the team and yourself are not used to that, it must be very cool, as you say, to walk in or for them to have that kind of atmosphere that doesn't happen all the time to be able to experience that once in their life or maybe if this year repeats, twice in their life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're well aware that volleyball isn't a isn't a primary sport in the area. Uh, I think it's become very different in the last 15 years, um, and it's becoming more so. Um, but yeah, it's it, these guys didn't come here to play in these big matches, uh, you know. But the fact that we have that opportunity, we're definitely going to take advantage of it. 
Like we play it because we love the sport and we train every day. And there's, you know, if, if we're just going to work hard and, and enjoy it when there's 3,000 people in the gym, then we, we're defining ourselves in a very narrow bandwidth of success and, and or enjoyment. And so we love it every day. We, we you know, it's a, it's your passion and, and uh, you, what we call enjoying the grind. And so, on the on the Monday to Thursdays when there's nobody in a gym, we still love it just as much. But to be able to share that on your home court with your family, your friends, your student body, those that are closest to you, um, and when they can see you laying everything you have out on the court, uh, it, it's a pretty raw moment. It's a pretty special moment for a student athlete. I'm sure I've asked you this before, but do you see evidence that all this success that McMaster has had is beginning to change that storyline a bit, that volleyball that was a mystery and that was a sport nobody or many people didn't really watch, that that is changing, that suddenly people may actually talk to you about volleyball and say, you know, I actually saw a McMaster game and it was pretty darn good. Yeah, I you know, I've had a number of people... Um, uh, have that have a, a a version of that conversation with me, um, where you know there there is uh, there are there are people from you know uh, uh, that are heavily involved in other sports who said you know what I went to see one of those games you guys it was amazing and uh, I, I love to hear that um, I don't think we're ever going to be at the top of the landscape and quite honestly I'm not really sure the sport infrastructure is built for it so um, but the reality of it is is the fact that these guys are getting exposure like yourself where there's radio talk show hosts that are interested in covering some McMaster volleyball. That's a big deal. That's a really, really big deal. And, uh, you know, I, I think our student athletes are really, really grateful for it. We talk about our attitude of gratitude and, uh, you know, we're, we're just really happy and thankful for the opportunities that McMaster has been able to provide to us in the sport that we love. What about in the sport? Uh, when you walk into a gym, because of McMaster's success, when Dave Preston now walks into a gym and there's a high school game or there's a club championship or something at a, at a high level, everybody knows who you are, right? They know that you are in the gym and that McMaster is there taking a look at them. You've, you've, you, I mean, I know you're modest, but you've achieved that the school with you have achieved that level of recognition now, correct? Um, honestly, Scott, you'd have to ask them, but I, there, there's more times that I'm recognized than I'm not. Right. And especially in the volleyball community. So uh, can I say everybody? Probably not. Uh, but uh, more often than not, if I'm walking into to a place to, um, to to see a young man play or, or you know, to, to watch a game or talk to a family, um, it, it's uh, it's not often before somebody says, uh, hey, I saw you guys play. Uh, you did a great job with that. How often do you hear people say, and it goes back to your point earlier when you said that people said, I watched one of your games and it was amazing. How often do you hear people say, as I learned when I first watched my first live volleyball match, this game does not translate onto TV. So when I watch the Olympics and I see those guys, yeah, they're, you know, they're athletic and they're whatever. It is completely different when I actually see it in person. Yeah, I, we get that a lot, actually. Um, you know, people watch volleyball at the Olympics and it's actually on uh mainstream television more now too so there there's more opportunities for you to see some volleyball on tv but you're right i don't think um i don't think it does translate very well uh when you can see the athleticism the speed of the ball uh the 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 height that it's played at uh it it is fascinating and when it's played at the level that it's going to be played at this weekend um, I don't, and that's what excites me, right? I'm at the top of the pyramid, so I'm, I'm working with the best of the best. That's 
that's part of what keeps me coming back. And uh, it's really, really exciting to see it played at that level. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's poetry. It's a dance. It's, it's amazing. I know what you, how you're going to answer this question, so I'm going to ask you to not answer as I know would be your inclination, that is to answer about the players. Answer about yourself for just a second here. What would a national championship mean to you? I know you will say, you probably, I'm guessing what you're going to say, that oh, it'll be great for the players and everything else. For Dave Preston, who's been at this for so long, who's led so many teams to provincial championships, what would a national championship mean to you? Um, I think it would mean a lot. Uh, I think when you spend 26 years trying to do something and you, you never know if you're ever going to have another chance to do it, um, to get one would be pretty special. Um, there's no doubt about it. Um, I'm, I'm not going to pull any punches. That's, it's what keeps me going. It's what, you know, it's what keeps me up at night, but it's what gets me up in the morning. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think, uh, one would be good, but I'll tell you with all full honesty, as soon as I got one, I'd want to, <laughs> um, right. So I, I, I wouldn't say it's, me it's everything i i really work hard at trying to keep things in perspective um and and the and the truth is i'm trying not to answer it the way that i that you don't want me to but the truth of the matter is it's more about our guys it really is it's about the investment that they've made it's about the investment that the players before them made to get us to this opportunity to get us right so my job right now, Scott, is to just try and facilitate opportunities for these young men who go to McMaster University and play volleyball representing their school. And I'm just trying to put them in a position for them to succeed. I will not, as much as I want to, I'm not going to score a single point this weekend. These guys will do that. This is for the Andrew Richards and the Brandon Coppers and the Jordan Pereiras and the Matt Passlins. That, that, this is what this is about. This is their opportunity. It's not mine. And I'm just trying to put them in a position to be as successful as they possibly can. And so the, my answer is going to be, it will mean as much to me as it means to them. And that, that's just fact. Like, you know, will I, will I want one? Yeah, of course. But it's not mine. Right? It's the schools. It's the players. And uh, that's just the way I view it. That's, that's, that's how I'm wired. That's how I, you know, that's. That's how I roll. And to go back to them, as we let you go here, to go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, knowing that the teams that are coming here from Canada West have that scholarship advantage and knowing they've won 22 of the last 23 championships and knowing that if you guys are going to win a championship this year, it seems very likely you're going to have to beat Trinity Western in the semifinals. You will, one way or another, you're going to have to beat a team from the West. Does that make it? Is it possible that that could make it any more special or is just a championship enough or beating one of those teams would make it even better? Hey, the first thing we got to take care of is Montreal. True enough. So if you, if you start worrying about step two before you started taking step one, you're going to trip. So we're going to take care of Montreal and we're going to do everything we can to put ourselves in a position to be successful in match number one. And then uh, Trinity Western has to get by Windsor. So, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen, but the reality of it is we'll deal with step two once step one is done. So, you know, you don't go through 26 years of experience and start focusing on the wrong things at the wrong times. 
so we 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 have our ducks in order and we want to make sure that we're taking care of first things first and from there will it mean you know uh mean anything more or the truth of the matter is at this stage it's a lot more about us than it is about anybody else but you know i think we've had a little bit too much much success uh to term ourselves as underdogs uh so i I don't really think that that uh, moniker can hold but the reality of it is we know what is in front of us we we know what the challenges are in front of us we hear about it all the time. We deal with it all the time, uh, and we're we're willing to face that stuff. We understand that every time we put on a uniform, what the challenges are in front of us. So that is a real thing for us, and we're going to make sure that we really take advantage of it. Step one is tomorrow at six o'clock at the Burge no, Gym. No, 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 no. You got no, Friday. Friday. Sorry, Friday. I got the wrong day. Friday at six o'clock. Thank you. I got one more day, Scott. Yeah, I got yeah. One more day. Don't take that away from me now. <laughs> Friday yeah. at six o'clock at the Birds Gym. Yes, I will not do that. If I show up to cover it tomorrow at six, I'll be very lonely. I'm guessing. Uh, Friday <laughs> at six o'clock at Birds Gym, McMaster versus the University of Montreal. I understand tickets are still available, although uh, they have sold quite a few. So, uh, yeah, they're, Dave, they're going fast. Dave Preston, head coach of McMaster, really appreciate your time and good luck this weekend. Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate you having us on. That is, uh, again, 6 o'clock Friday, if you are interested. Friday, Burr's Gym for the National Volleyball. If you've never been, and I'm not getting a dime for saying this, I I have no connection to this, but if you have never been and never seen this level of volleyball in person and you're not doing something on Friday night... I'm telling you, it's you could find a lot worse things to do with your Friday than to go and check this out. It is, it is pretty darn impressive when you see this level of volleyball played live. Very, very different from what you've seen on TV. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.